Welcome to the Jazz Legends Podcast, which was born out of the Jazz Evensong gatherings on Sunday nights at St. Michael's by the Sea in Carlsbad, California. This week we feature the music of the great pianist and arranger Tad Dameron, born February 21st, 1917. Writing charts for bebop combos and big bands, Dameron was one of the most influential arrangers of his generation. In a 1947 interview, he remarked, There's enough ugliness in the world. I'm interested in beauty. Indeed. The knowledgeable jazz musicians you'll hear are Gunnar Biggs, Keith Bishop, Joey Carano, and Bob Weller. And the talk is moderated by me, your host, Father Doran Stambaugh. Dig it. So, who's Tad Dameron? He's... One of the best unknown uh, songwriter arrangers no one has ever heard of, probably. He's originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and he only lived to the age of 48. He was saddled with a lot of really bad drug problems, hmm. and uh, it shortened his life. That was one of the things that shortened his life. He was uh, a great accompanist pianist. He, he would comp. He played with a bunch of really heavy players. He played with Bird, and he, he played with Dizzy, and... He, he did some 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 really good playing in his life. He, one of the most uh, visible records he made was with John Coltrane, and he wrote all these original tunes for Col- Coltrane. And he, if you listen to him play on that record, you can tell why he wasn't really well-known as a player, because his piano styling sort of sounds like he plays a lot of block chord stuff like he would have written as an arrangement for an ensemble. And he doesn't play, he doesn't have a really strong right hand bebop piano style like the, all the guys that became well known as the bebop piano players had. And it's interesting because on the projects that he was arranging and composing that he was responsible for putting the band together, he would hire all the greatest piano players available at the time. Hank Jones is on them and Duke Jordan is on his records and it's like, who's who of the great piano players of that era. And he, for the last several years of his life, he refused to play a piano on any of his recordings himself. Because I think he was very reticent about the way he could play. You know, not that he was a bad player. He just didn't have the technical facility that a lot of players had. But as a writer, he wrote for literally every big band in the, the late 40s and 50s. Up to the 60s, he was writing for all the bands. He even wrote for uh, Duke's band which is almost unheard of, like for someone outside of Billy Strayhorn and Duke to write for the band. But he wrote all these great tunes. A lot of jazz musicians still to this day play his tunes because they're melodically interesting and harmonically interesting. And they're, they sound like his tunes, like he has his own personal style of composition. And it's kind of tragic that he didn't get to, he had a dream of like going to Hollywood and scoring films. And it was towards the end of his life and he didn't really have the wherewithal to do it. And one of the tragic things about his life is um, Richard Carpenter, not the Richard Carpenter of the Carpenter's fame, but this uh, guy that was a predator on a bunch of junkies, a bunch of musical junkies, uh, latched on to Tad Dameron. At one point in his career, he uh, got busted from heroin and he was in serious trouble. And Richard Carpenter had some kind of pull that he was able to get his records stolen out of the uh, out of the court system so that that first arrest wasn't showing up on his record. Because apparently if you had three arrests, that was like the end of you. You were mm-hmm. thrown away forever. So he, he, he got his first record somehow illegally expunged. And when he got arrested the second time, they didn't have any record of it. And when he got uh, 
the final time he got busted, he was lucky to get sent to Lexington, which was the federal penitentiary a lot of junkies went to and got straight over the years. And he kind of got straight then. And But unfortunately, he had so many other physical problems, he ended up dying of a heart attack several years after that. So he never got to fulfill his dream of going to Hollywood. And at one point in his life, he ended up going to Paris with Miles Davis and one of before Miles Davis had a, a big career. And he got accepted by uh, some French orchestras and by the Ted Heath's band and some other bands in England. And he was trying to figure out a way to go over there full time and, and write and, and live there. But it was difficult at that point for someone to emigrate from the United States. So he, he was kind of a lot of the dreams that he had were never fulfilled, which is kind of tragic. Because in his short lifespan, he wrote so many really nice tunes. And a lot of them are still not even like that, that well known. But when we were going to go uh, do a retrospective of a lot of the tunes that he wrote that are, are better known. So he's not, not well known, but... But he's, known more for his more for his composition than for his yeah more more than for his playing ability and he was even self-effacing about his playing ability hmm. which is funny because when you hear somebody playing with John Coltrane like and the, the rest of the rhythm section is burning and he comps great on the record but his solos besides not being very long or not very distinguished either you, huh. you can tell he's not a technically adept pianist on the, especially on the Coltrane record hmm. and that's probably the most well-known record he playing piano on. Are there some tunes? What are some tunes that... Well, Lady, Bird Lady Bird is one of his big, yeah. If You Can See Me Now. Oh, that one, sure. Sarah Vaughan, I think. Everybody. One of Sarah Vaughan's first big hits. And Good Bait. Da, 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 diddly, da, diddly, da. Yeah. But Lady Bird, really, the first time I heard Lady Bird, I heard the turnaround at the end. Yeah. Said that, well, and that's everywhere that's now. Giant, I mean, it, yeah. well, That's giant <laughs> gotcha, steps. Yeah, yeah. But they used to call it the Tad Dameron turnaround. Okay, what's this? It's a it's a chord sequence. Instead of one six two five, it's one flat three four. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's all it's it's giant steps changes is what I was called, told it was because he yeah built it and at the time it built was, the whole tune around that. It was sort around. of associated with Tad Dameron. He did it first. Yeah, yeah. he wrote it in nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, this book points out that a lot of the tunes that he wrote he wrote before he ever left uh, Cleveland, mm-hmm. and people in Cleveland were taking them back. Like wow. What's he? What's he doing? How's he hearing this stuff? You know. Yeah. And he was sort of a genius because he didn't wasn't trained in any way, which is probably part of the reason his piano chops were not all that advanced. But he heard stuff. Yeah. yeah. He wrote it down. Yeah, I read that again. He, he graduated from high school, and that's the information he learned, and he just took it out. Yeah. And his his brother, writing. his older brother, was a musician too, which uh-huh. may have influenced him a little bit, but. <laughs> It's still like hard to fathom how he came out of Cleveland like without any real background and started writing for all these bands. Well, and and I heard that his whole family, they were all musicians. The, the, the mom also had him practicing the piano every day. Yeah, apparently his his mom was his his first piano teacher and maybe only piano teacher. And I also heard and this I thought was nice. I don't know why, but he was good friends with Mary Lou Williams. Oh yeah. They were very close, I think. That's awesome. Matter of fact, the book mentions that she had some scores of his in her personal papers when she passed away. Oh. He'd written some things for her to play with uh, Clouds of Joy that oh. maybe or may, may or may not have ever been played by the Clouds of Joy, but she'd kept the scores all these years for, yeah. for some of his tunes that he'd written at that time. What's the book you got? 
Oh, this is a book called Dameronia. There's very little information out about Tad Dameron and a local uh, oh, that's author Paul. Paul yeah, wrote yeah, this yeah. book. I was mostly interested in the biographical information. And there's not very much available because he was kind of a private person. And he didn't. And, and he also had a penchant for lying to people when he was interviewed <laughs> and making up stuff. All like right. He, there, there's some old interviews of him where he claims that he went to medical school, and he never went to medical school. It's oh. like it's he, and I, I think he might have been getting a kick out of pulling somebody's leg, Early seeing how much trolling. he could like get away with before they say, "Oh no, you're bullshitting me." But <laughs> apparently, they didn't. They write out these articles, and he'd be, you know, like, been, and he also would like he he would tell tall tales like when he came back from here, was saying, "Oh yeah." I've been writing for Ted Heath's band. I got a contract writing for this band and uh, for BBC and stuff. And he didn't. You know, oh, he'd wow. maybe written something and brought it into their rehearsal and they were still playing it or they'd recorded it or something. But it wasn't like he had like a new contact or a career that he was going to be able to pursue. Huh. And it was some of it, I think, was pipe dream. You know, like he would have loved to have been a staff writer into the BBC or something. But, hmm. And he was so prolific, he probably could have done something I think something he would like have been that. great, I, you know. Now, if he'd have had an outlet for his stuff, you know, instead of writing a few charts for this band and a few charts for that band. And well, I mean, you know, he did a lot of big band arranging, but also small group arranging, which I think is great. And yeah. but writing well, he, strings. He's, I mean, he was also, he did great string writing and nobody really understands how he psyched out he how to write for out, strings right? but he, he did it, it. Yeah. he figured it out on his own and he was really influential like writing for like four and five horns matter of fact there's this, the thing in here uh bull moose jackson was a blues act r&b act in the 50s oh. and they were they, they'd grown up together in cleveland and he hired tad to write for the band and around that same time benny golson was a younger guy and he got hired to play in the band and he was knocked out that tad dameron was playing with bull moose jackson yeah. and they i guess he was picking tad's brain like how do you do this how do you do that and everything and yeah. he sort of like was schooling benny golson and benny golson became a really well-known writer and composer yeah. after that himself but it was also interesting that benny golson ended up getting all these heavy guys on bull moose jackson's band he got philly joe jones tad dameron apparently gave philly joe the depth that philly Joe, because to differentiate him from JoJo's, yeah, you know, yeah, the, the, sw yeah. the swing I band. That, yeah, yeah. And he got Johnny Coles on the band and Jimmy Merritt. And it was like, it must have been quite a band. Right, you know? right. Bull Moose. <laughs> Bull Moose, <laughs> yeah. Bull Moose. But Bull Moose had a hit, so and Tad had written the uh, arrangement. So so yeah. what's, what's unique or interesting about his composition? Well, well, he, he was real melodic, you know, more than a lot of the beboppers were, I think. A lot of his melodies are like immediately recognizable as like, hooks. Yeah, yeah, they're they're hmm. hooks, and they're like he really had a gift for melody, which a lot of the like the jazz co composers at that time didn't really have that much of a gift for melody hmm. as much as he did. I don't think, hmm. and he had a kind of a unique arranging style. He he had like a way of voicing for small groups of horns. And he got to make a bunch of recordings with some really great players, with Fats Navarro and and uh, with, with Dexter Brown, Gordon right? and Clifford Brown. Yeah, yeah. and he, he sort of introduced Clifford Brown on on records. I forget who it was that it was. He was writing a record for, and he was originally going to use Fats on the record. And then he heard Clifford play, and he was telling the person that he was writing the record for, "You got to hear, you got to hear Clifford play. You know, like you're going to want to use Clifford too." Uh, so he ended up getting two two trumpets on the date instead of just one, because the person was so taken with Clifford, and that was you know one of the first uh, you know big recording sessions that Clifford made as a 
unknown trumpet player from Wilmington, Delaware. You know. Yeah, his melodies were so strong and and beautiful, really, and, and simple in a way. But then he he was using bebop harmony with these half step two fives and. And it, it did sound like bebop music and with he the more wrote, complex. And a lot of the portion. melodies used like tensions, you know, that weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of songwriters that were using like flat nines and sharp nines and uh, flat fives and whatnot as as a melodic element. And he he used that language when he wrote tunes that were more accessible than a lot of the bebop tunes. Hmm. A good bait is I got rhythm in two different keys. Yeah, yeah. well, a lot of his tunes, a lot of his tunes floor. are based on standards like uh, on a misty, misty Night, night is based. Oh, that was the night. one on a Misty, misty night. night. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but he does an interesting thing in the bridge. He does that half step two yeah. five right. going down, oh, yeah, right. which is a big improvement on the original harmonization. Yeah. But but I could, you know, that's what Charlie Parker was doing sometimes. Yeah. and he played with Bird a lot. Yeah. And there's a story in this book that uh, at one point he was there listening to Dizzy and uh, Bird and Al Haig was playing, playing piano. And Al was pretty well known for not having a good left hand. He just like was not, he was a great soloist, but he wasn't a great comper. So at one point Dizzy got Tad up and said, show Al what you'd comp on this tune. So, and, and, and Al, oh yeah, that's what I should do. Because yeah, you know? yeah. he was a really good comper. Yeah. Just didn't have that much chops when he had to play bebop with his left hand, the right hand. Really. Here's a quote um, that I wrote down. Uh, it said, Dameron brought form to the kinetic new music, talking about his uh, relationship with bop and those players. He said his sense of harmony came from the classical impressionists. It's more on a vein of Debussy or Ravel, he told an interviewer. Yeah. There's a thing in this book, too, that says somebody came over, was visiting his house and asked him if he had, like, this record or that record by, you know, like, the latest, like, Bebopper. He says, no, I like beautiful music. And he had, like, romantic and, and classical records in his collection. That's what he liked to listen to. And you can tell that from listening to what he writes, I think, that he's really influenced by those kind of harmonies more than, like, the frenetic, like, balls to the wall, like, straight-ahead Bebopper's. Well, he goes on to talk about, I, I try to make it, he says, he talks about flow. I try to make it flow. I uh, try to make, make everything go like reading a book, a regular story. You just can't have one idea and jump to another. I try to make a flow coherently. Is that reflective in his compositions? <laughs> I think so, yeah. yeah. No, it's a, it's a really kind of a, a shame that he wasn't given the opportunity to do more things that would have attracted the public's attention. Well, when you think about all the all the guys that he knew that ended up in Hollywood, Benny Golson and J.J. Johnson and all these people ended up being, if not anything else, ghostwriters. And he was he was on the road with uh, Gerald Wilson, who ended up in Hollywood being a ghostwriter for a bunch of people. And bunch, especially a bunch of the black guys that their first generation that ended up in Hollywood as writers were not recognized for what they did. They were like ghostwriting for other people. I, I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch this uh, detective thing called It Takes a Thief. And yeah. supposedly Dave Grusin scored it. And I was knocked out with the music. And it wasn't until several years ago when I was living out in L.A. that I found out that it was J.J. Johnson and Benny Golson okay. and Oliver Nelson. They were the people that actually wrote the wow. music for that show. Wow. And it, no wonder it was good. you know. Yeah. Like, But none of those people got credit for it. They just got paid under the table or whatever, got paid scale for doing whatever they did. But it was such great music. Uh, what else about Tad? Uh, recordings that you would recommend? Well, the, the one I already mentioned was Mating Call. That Soul Train is 
the album. Well, the, yeah. they, the original album was called Mating Call, but I've seen it reissued as Soul Train. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Mm. The, the copy that I have is called Mating Call. And he played like lots song. with this Fats, Navarro. And there are records out yeah. of that band with Fats. Sometimes the, the, there are a lot of live recordings, if I'm not mistaken. And so. Well, there's some studio records that, that weren't well received. One of them was Fountain Blue. I think that might have well, been his last recording. There's some interesting things on that for sure. And he wrote uh, the, the last recording project he did was for Sonny Stitt and Sonny Stitt and the Big Brass. Oh. And it just the writing is is beautiful. And he has some of his original tunes on there. But he was in such ill health by the end that and he wasn't a self promoter by any stretch of the imagination. And sadly, he, he was so badly ripped off by this Richard Carpenter. I started to tell that story. Yeah, yeah. That when he got sick several years before he died, he just started signing over all of his residuals to this Richard Carpenter. And I don't know whether Richard Carpenter was holding the uh, the fact that he'd stolen this first arrest over his head. So he felt like he had to keep paying this guy off or whether he just was so desperate for money that he was willing to sign away all of his publishing rights to this guy. But, and that's not the – Richard Carpenter also ripped off Miles Davis, you know, the tune Walkin'. If you look at the record – it's listed as Miles Davis and Richard Carpenter. Yeah, Richard Carpenter like did something, but he didn't write the tune. Uh, <laughs> hmm. um, Bob, you you play as a pianist and drummer, but anything about Tad that you find unique or different or interesting? Oh, well, I was thinking about that tune on a misty night, and that's kind of like not a typical bebop tune, you know, by any stretch. It, and uh, harmonically, it's. It moves in a different direction. You know, it does, a, I mean, it, like Keith mentioned, the bridge is really different. But even the structure of the, the A section is, uh, it's kind of fresh sounding. Hmm. You know, it doesn't just move diatonically. And, uh, I don't know, it, it has a more of a, I don't know, reminds me of more of something Wayne might write. Interesting. You know, than a bebop tune. To me, it sounds so pretty. It you is know, pretty, and, and, yeah. And, I do think it sounds like bebop with those half steps, and mm -hmm. but it, it's just a straight pretty melody, you know. Oh, well, melody is definitely not as busy, yeah. and, and I think harmonically it moves yeah. in a different direction yeah. than most uh, bebop that I've heard. Hmm. Yeah, but that's interesting that comparing him to Wayne because Wayne is so unique, yeah. and so melodic, so many on so many of his tunes. He does have those big melodies and sometimes they're very simple and, and yet the harmony makes it this mm -hmm. yeah, other right. animal entirely. Yeah. Wayne Shorter's melodies are so big, Beethoven or something. What else does he like as a person? I mean, you mentioned private and also um, with interviewers, not always Pathological true. Liar. <laughs> Pathological liar. <laughs> but I did hear somebody talk about what a beautiful person he was. Mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe somebody who produced his records or one of them said he was a beautiful, gentle man. Yeah. Well, Benny Golson, like, can't say enough good things about him yeah. when he worked with him. That, like, because Benny was trying to pick his brain all the time and yeah. it didn't bother him a bit. And I'll tell you anything I know. I heard that he fun. would just share. Yeah. Just wouldn't hold back if you had a question. Yeah. No problem. Um, other resources to learn about him? There's not a lot, is there? Like you were saying. No, this, that's why Paul wrote this book. Yeah. There was another book that I see, like, it's, it's been out of print for a long time, and it's like 70 or $80 to buy a copy of it. I don't oh, wow. even know who wrote it, but it's, it's, there's not a lot of information. I have to give anybody credit for trying to write a book about him because 
it's kind of a fool's errand, I think. Yeah. Well, and this might say something about him. Paul does say that when he was trying trying to find out information, and he it was interviewed dizzy and. Um, uh, no, it's, it's like he has a whole raft of people. But a he number of people over the course of twenty five years. <laughs> a number of people took him by the hand and said, "Finish this book." Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the implication was that we love this guy and people need to know about him. Are you? Um, what are you guys going to play on a misty night? Right. That's one yeah. of the ones we're going to play. If you could see me now. Yeah. And good bait. Good bait. Ladybird. Yeah. You know what's funny? I didn't realize that was a Tad Dam. I, I I forgot or something. Did not. And so who made it famous? Well, the Beeboppers did. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like Dizzy and Charlie Parker. I think that's one of their records, right? Oh, right, right, right. It's a contrafact on what is this thing called love? But it's it's probably one of the most complicated heads that Tad Damron ever wrote. Quintessential uh, bebop. He, right? he didn't he didn't write any other complicated heads like that mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, it's pretty a constant. What did you call it? Quintessential. Quintessential. Yeah, 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 it is. Yeah, yeah. It's a quintessential bebop tune. It's true. Here's a a nineteen from a nineteen forty seven interview in Metronome magazine. He said. There's enough ugliness in the world. I'm interested in beauty. Well, I think his his music reflects that. It's it's pretty. Yeah. Most of his tunes are pretty, with the exception of. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what is Tad short for? Hadley. Really? And they, they, that's a weird thing in this book too. <laughs> so obvious. he originally had one D, and some kind of at some point when he was in his 30s or something, he was reading some numerological thing that he thought having two Ds in his name would change his luck. So he started spelling his name with two Ds. Oh, yeah. It didn't work, obviously. Oh. <laughs> Should have made it three. <laughs> if it had lived longer, maybe he'd have tried that. <laughs> the Evensong Quintet will feature the music of pianist and arranger Tad Dameron on February 25th starting at 4 p.m. The weekly Jazz Evensong gatherings are free and open to the public and take place on Sundays at 4 p.m. at St. Michael's-by-the-Sea in Carlsbad, California. See you there. <laughs>